0: This is Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder.
1: Object to the text.
0: This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. I go through a ton of reading and research every week, and I take the five things that I found most valuable every week, put it together into a free Saturday morning email. You can sign up for that at thefelderreport.com. Right there on the homepage, click join now, and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Mike Green. Now, Mike's been in the right place at the right time for his entire investment career, and not just by way of good fortune. Mike has an uncanny knack for finding value in the markets. After jumping into the small cap value game in 1999 and taking advantage of one of the best runs for value as a factor in history, he moved on to explore opportunities in hedging via derivatives in 2006, just prior to the great financial crisis. Shortly thereafter, massive mispricings in the options market, driven by the sudden popularity of tail hedging strategies, gave him a new source for profit. Then, well prior to the Balmageddon episode of early 2018, he became aware of the fragility created by the increasingly crowded short volatility trade and designed a strategy to profit from its demise. As his track record demonstrates, Mike's one of the most insightful market detectives in the world, and in this conversation he reveals where he finds the greatest value in the markets today. So, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Mike Green. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S and P 500 because they're sheep, and sheep get slaughtered. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jesse. It's a pleasure to be here. I am super stoked to have you. I've been, uh, you know, listening to you give interviews. Over the last few months, and I think I first approached you about uh, doing this maybe i don't know was it a year ago <laughs> several months ago at least so I'm glad for the opportunity to be able to finally ask you some some of this stuff I've been dying to ask you i I've heard you do several interviews where you you know the discussion quickly turns to passive investing. Um, I think we'll probably get to that, but before we do, i'd love to a little bit you know know a little bit more about your background, how you got where you are today, what was it that first got you invest or interested in the markets?
1: Um, so I've been doing this for a long time. I'm, uh, I'm 50 years old, but um, yeah, I guess you're not supposed to admit those sorts of things. But um, I grew up in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, became interested in economics and markets, you know, kind of at a, a, a normal age, I think, for people in, in our industry. Somewhere in my teen years, I began to explore some of the dynamics around it um was really you know fascinated enough that i faked being sick so i could stay home and watch the crash of 1987 and stay home from school to watch it uh, which was an amazing experience and and uh, happened on at almost exactly the same time that uh oliver stone's movie um uh, wall street came out right which of course anyone in our age group took exactly the wrong messages from and said gosh we really <laughs> Want to uh, be successful and go to Wall Street, as compared to the stories of greed that we were taught. Um, was fortunate enough to go to the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School of Business as an undergrad. Um, became very interested in kind of the the the, the, the very detailed technicals, um, and you know had the opportunity to consider getting a PhD. Chose not to do that, and instead went into management consulting because I really wanted to learn about how businesses themselves operated mm-hmm. and in management consulting got pulled into a specialization in mergers and acquisition. Um, the, you know, simple reality was at that point in time, the valuation tools that most of us take for granted, things like discounted cash flows, etc., were not widely known. Those tools weren't widely distributed. The advent of things like spreadsheets was still, you know, only about 10 years old at that point. And so myself and a couple of other guys that I had, uh, uh, either gone to school with or had developed a relationship with in the consulting world, uh, built a software tool that was designed for corporations to use to value their business units or potential acquisitions. Um, the Very early on in that process in nineteen ninety six uh, a gentleman by the name of Mitch Julis, uh, who had founded a firm called Canyon Partners alongside his partner Josh Friedman, uh, found our stuff on the internet. The early days of the internet, and reached out to us and said, you know, hey, could you link your valuation engines to the public equity databases that are maintained by CompuStat and others so that we could use it for evaluating the securities that we're thinking about buying? We recognized that that was an opportunity, and so we built uh, the software to incorporate that. That then launched a second career for me, which was, was uh, selling the valuation tools into Wall Street. And ultimately led to the sale of that business in 1999 to a firm called Holt that was then acquired by Credit Suisse. Um, With the sale to Holt, I decided to transition to the buy side. I was much more interested in actually applying the tools that we had used and trying to sell them to Wall Street. Everyone at that point was largely focused on the, can you explain the valuations of technology companies? And the answer was very straightforward. No, this looks like it's in a bubble, which was not the answer anyone, of course, wanted to hear. Um, but did create the opportunity set for kind of the next stage of my career. You know, as I went into the buy side, I intentionally chose to go into areas that I thought were most undervalued and represented the greatest long-term opportunity. That led me into U.S. small-cap value equities at a firm called Moody Aldrich Partners up in Boston. Um, Worked there for a number of years. We had, you know, we were quite fortunate, in that I went to to Moody Aldrich about six months before the end of the dot com cycle. If it had been three years, I think I probably wouldn't have wouldn't be on this phone talking to you. Um, and uh, after the two thousand uh, to two thousand three type uh, time period, um, I was recruited down to New York uh, to work for a firm called Royce and Associates. Um, Royce is kind of the preeminent small cap value shop or more actually small cap shop. Um, You know, I joined them. They had about 14 billion in assets under management when I left three years later to join Canyon Partners, who uh, ultimately hired me. They'd grown to about 50 billion dollars in assets. Um, And so Canyon approached me uh, to open a New York office for them at that point and Uh, Over the next eight years at Canyon, I built that from myself in a room to a team of about 15 people running somewhere in the neighborhood of $2.5 billion, um, and was fortunate to participate in a lot of interesting things along the way, in particular as the 2008 environment came through. I was very fortunate uh, that the guys at Canyon Partners allowed me to push much more aggressively into the macro, and in particular, into the derivative space. And at that point is when I really started to focus on kind of this, the, the type of investing that I do, which is, I would argue, 80% detective work and kind of 20% security selection, right? Which I'm just trying to find why people are being forced to do something, why they're doing something that the rest of us would look at and say, this is crazy. Why would you ever do this? Um, You often find that there's regulations that are in place there. You often find that people have more money than they know what to do with, and they're forced to do something from an institutional standpoint. Um, And so um, after being at Canyon for eight years and having a a wonderful run um, with the blessings of Mission Josh, I went to launch my own hedge fund backed by the guys at Soros. Um, The CIO at Soros was a gentleman by the name of Scott Bessent at that time, He had actually approached me about coming into Soros. I told him that I have a job, and he correctly interpreted that as saying I was interested in the entrepreneurial opportunity of launching my own firm. Um, As these things often go, it was an unmitigated disaster, unfortunately not for performance reasons. One of the things that people often don't understand about this business is that it's not just about performance. There's also an underlying characteristic of the business dynamic And in that situation, unfortunately, I was maliciously sued by an individual uh, who had no claim against me other than the fact that he had lied to his wife and he was in a situation where he needed to uh, assert that he had a role at the firm that he didn't. Um, His wife was quite wealthy and so funded the lawsuit. I ended up winning that, but it was a Pyrrhic victory. Um, And it basically meant that I I ended up losing my firm because when you're launched even with Soros backing – if you have a lawsuit against you asserting fraud, nobody can join your firm, right? Nobody, no investors will come into your firm. Um, Despite that, it managed to build up a little bit. And then, unfortunately, after winning the lawsuit, as I said, it turned into a total Pyrrhic victory because the CIO at Soros left and Soros just decided to discontinue any relationships with the firms that they had been involved with. And so I shut my firm and... Uh, Spent about a year thinking about things, doing a little bit of a sabbatical, which is something I highly recommend for everybody if they have the opportunity. And then joined Peter Thiel in December of 2016. Um, I'd met Peter when I was running my firm called Ice Farm. Um, He had considered becoming an investor, but ultimately the lawsuit uh, was a barrier for him as well. And that's for very good reason, by the way. I would encourage anyone to, to think critically about that because it is a distraction and it takes up a lot of brain space. Um, and so I worked with Peter for a number of years, developed uh, some of the trades that people know me for, things like the XIV blow up. Um, and in particular, really began to build on the idea of how passive was influencing the market, and understanding that dynamic. As we came into the end of 2019, um, I had met Wayne Himmelstein, my current partner about a year before, recognized that the two of us uh, meshed extraordinarily well and that Wayne's insights on the quantitative side mirrored many of my insights on the qualitative side and that there was an opportunity for the two of us to work together and to create something that was not just managing a single individual's capital, but ultimately had the opportunity to manage significant quantities of external capital. And so we launched the Logic Absolute Return Fund on January 1st of 2020. And that kind of brings us up to where we are today.
0: Yeah, that timeline is, um, you know, fascinating to me. It sounds like a lot of this is, you know, right place at the right time, but it sounds like you didn't do it necessarily by happenstance. It was consciously, I mean, to get into value. In 2000 was, you know, had to have been fantastic timing. And then to kind of, you know, transition to derivatives in 2007-ish, like you said, would have been perfect timing pre-financial crisis. Uh, and then, you know, short vol. So you strike, we, we're going to get into value, but you strike me as a value investor, not necessarily in the traditional sense, but looking for what is the greatest value opportunity in terms of w- what strategy has the greatest value right now
1: yeah, I think that's reasonable. and I always think of myself as a value investor from that standpoint. Um, I encourage people to recognize that what often creates value is not that you have a differing view about the cash flows of an individual company, um, but often that you can find a situation in which people are being forced to do something for non-economic reasons. right? And so a a simple example of that is if I'm sitting at a desk, um, and my job is to sell volatility. Then I will sell volatility, right? And it is unusual for me as an investor to say I'm not going to do so because my paycheck depends upon it. My my employment depends upon it. It is possible because it is stochastic that I can't possibly know that I'm going to be wrong. And so my my mentor Mitch Jules, who I mentioned before. He has a great expression, which is where you stand depends on where you sit. It's a variant of the Upton Sinclair, you know, convincing somebody of something when his job depends upon him or his paycheck uh, requires him to believe the opposite is basically zero, right? So that type of framework, I think, actually is really powerful to think about value investing. Why is somebody being forced to sell you this security? If they're not being forced to sell it to you, then they're willingly selling it to you. And maybe you don't know something that they know. It's only when you can really figure out why they're being forced to do something that you can feel fairly confident that you've discovered a value. Well, and this brings me to,
0: you know, the uh, derivatives um, side of things where it seems like you have a great deal of expertise. You talked about, you know, the firm you moved to in 2007-ish. Was that
1: where this education, this derivatives education came in? Uh, well, I moved to Canyon partners in 2006. Um, and actually the, the derivative education was something I had largely put on ice for almost 20 years. So when I was still at Wharton, um, uh, I was a uh, teaching assistant to Gary Gorton, um, at the university of Pennsylvania. He is the individual who built most of the models for AIGs financial, uh, products group. Um, including their cds models etc uh so i had a background in derivatives i'd actually traded crude oil derivatives on the new york mercantile exchange when i was at penn as well uh so i like I, I had a background in it but i had never really had a situation where i was able to point to it and say hey there's something really wrong right and so leading into the 2008 events i was fortunate that at canyon partners we identified um as a hedge, ironically, uh, the ABX trade, the the big short trade, used size that to offset a long position in uh, homebuilder WCI communities that one of the analysts uh, had wanted to put on, and just did our math wrong candidly, and so ended up making about a billion and a half dollars when we were design designing the size of the trade to protect against the two hundred million dollar long position, um, but that was part of the start of the opportunity of the breakdown of the directional prop desks on Wall Street that I think created a lot of the opportunities that exist today. And so if you remember in the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis, the teachings of Nassim Taleb about the importance of the fat tails and the black swan type dynamic became very dominant in people's thought process. And so every hedge fund had to be able to show their investors how they were hedged to prevent a repeat of 2008. At the exact same time, two sizable events had occurred. One was the uh, variable annuity space faced a significant change in regulations that required them to begin hedging their books. And likewise, uh, the Volcker Rule on Wall Street, introduced the idea that the street itself could no longer trade uh, on a directional basis. And so the ability to absorb that risk, to absorb the black swan risk, went away, and those prices exploded. Uh, For me, that created an opportunity because I reverse-engineered those products and recognized that buying those tail hedges coming out of 2008 Was akin to shorting investment grade debt at, you know, 25 to 30% interest rates. Um, it just was silly, right? It was, it was a terrible, terrible trade. And, And that was part of my pushback against people at that point in time was that, yes, you want to own protection, but if the protection on your house becomes more than your mortgage payment on the house, then you probably should just self insure, right? Or recognize you can't afford that house. And so those were the conditions that were in place after the global financial crisis. And ironically, I was quite a scale, uh, uh, volatility seller. I mean, we had yards and yards of protection that we sold in the time period from 2009 through give or take 2013 that ended up being extraordinarily profitable. Um, when that began to disappear, is when I began to recognize when the op- those opportunities began to disappear and I began to look at the dynamics of why people continued to sell that volatility. I began to recognize that we were almost on the flip side of that scenario. And I, I did a 2016 interview for real vision where I highlighted this dynamic that, that increasingly people didn't even know that they were selling insurance in their strategies. Right, so things like buy right or, or call overriding strategies, they're selling insurance. You're selling a put. To the street, put right strategies explicitly are doing this. Um, people often don't think about it; they don't realize that that's what they're doing. And so now the conditions are in place in which I would argue that volatility and the instruments that are used to express that, by and large, represent extraordinary value. So I'm I'm on the other side of where I would have been seven years ago.
0: Yeah, and and that's what I thought you were going to say when you started, you know, talking about starting your own firm and and it uh, not succeeding is that you know the the most of i you know one of the most important things i've probably learned through my experience in this industry is that maybe the most difficult thing to do is convince somebody to that uh, you know, to invest in a strategy um, when it's the most important time to invest in it. So, you know, like your point of uh, about, you know, right after the financial crisis, everybody wanted um, to get into tail hedging. That slowly, ev- you know, you, but you couldn't get anybody to, to, to sell, you know, volatility at that time. And smol- slowly, over the, you know, 10 years, Everybody started shorting volatility, and nobody wanted to tail hedge anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's it's just you know fascinating that uh, you know I see fantastic managers, you know that maybe not had a good three or five years, but it looks like you know it's probably the time to give those guys some money, and they can't raise money to save their lives. So I thought that was probably what you were going to say about your firm, but uh, I, I think your your point about shortfalls was a perfect segue into um, this value discussion because in your those three papers you recently wrote about value investing um you make the point that the the value factor is essentially um you know the success of the performance of it largely due to the volatility environment so long value is essentially akin to short vol how, how, how does
1: that how does that work well so it's actually the exact same, the, the exact same insights that we've had on passive right so What I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to understand what are the rules, what are the dynamics that somebody is putting in place when they choose... I'm going to move my microphone a little bit closer here because it looks like I'm not picking up quite as well as I should. Um, When people are pursuing a strategy, you have to ask yourself, what are the actual rules of engagement that they're using with their portfolio? And so the data on value investing um, is from the, the Fama French framework, uh, that was introduced in a 1994 paper. And there was this contrast of value versus glamor. And the observation was that if you bought stocks with high book to market ratios or low price to book, which is just the reverse, uh, that you would outperform on a continuous basis. And this of course was very intuitive and makes sense, right? That you should buy cheap and you should sell dear. And so a lot of people were drawn into these dynamics. But when you actually dig into the rules under which systematic value investing is done, and I want to distinguish between systematic and an individual value manager who could be doing something very, very different, but in its simplest form, a systematic value strategy says, if something falls in price, then I become a buyer. And if something rises a lot in price relative to the universe, then I become a seller. Now, those patterns of cash flow the cash deployment and the cash receipt can be mirrored with options, right? I've sold a put option. Therefore, when something falls in price, I have to come up with cash. I have to buy that stock. When something rises a lot in price, it gets called away from me. I have to sell it. I receive cash. That's just a short put, short call expression. And so by building that into your portfolio. And building that into the rules of construction, what you're actually doing is capturing the premium associated with selling those options, i.e. a short volatility strategy. And so what we did that was unique in our papers was we actually highlighted this mechanism. And then we literally went through all 1,500 stocks um, in the S&P 1500 and we looked at what would happen if you systematically did exactly that, that you sold call options and you sold put options against the securities. And lo and behold, you get almost exactly the value premium. All right. And we then traced that back over time to illustrate how this would work. Right. But when you, when you do that, you suddenly recognize that what you thought you were being compensated for, which is being smarter than everybody else, that you were being less emotional about it. You are actually just being compensated for selling options. And that's a totally different return profile than a brilliant value investor who can spot opportunities that others can't see.
0: You know, that's that's a totally unique insight. And, and to me, it uh you know for a value investor like me, who's been kind of decrying short vol, it's you know, it's kind of a, a revelation, um, you know, that and, a, and an important one. Um, and, and I, I really appreciated that, that insight, you know, in, in the papers, I thought that was, you know, very, very important that people understand. Um, you know, you probably noticed, I mean, the title of my podcast is super investors in the art of worldly wisdom, super investors refers to the paper that Buffett wrote, or actually a speech he gave at Columbia, um, celebrating Ben Graham's uh, achievements in which he highlighted, you know, basically. more
1: thoughts think, than others. Yeah. 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 yeah i very I'm familiar, familiar with it. it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Graham's students that became, you know, they all kind of outperformed the market from whatever it was, 1950, when Buffett graduated until 84, when he delivered the speech. Um, I found it fascinating that in your analysis, you find that that was maybe the, you know, most extended period of low vol Mm -hmm. uh, in history. Do you think that helps to explain some of this that, you know, Buffett was pointing to?
1: I, I, I do, unfortunately, right? And so Graham was kind of the ultimate version of the, uh, you know, picking up the cigar butts type dynamic. And I would argue that part of what distinguishes Warren Buffett from the rest of the Graham acolytes and Graham himself, you know, they were able to achieve returns that look very much like a short wall exposure. Buffett, under the influence of Munger and Phil Fisher in the, the 1950s and 1960s, begin to think about the dynamics of what does it mean to actually be a GARP type investor or to identify excellent businesses. So I would sandwich Warren Buffett uh, into a category where he's a little bit of a hybrid, right? So he is introduced uh, the idea that he wants to buy companies with large moats that he's willing to pay a fair price for them. And he expects to be compensated through the growth dynamics, not simply through picking up the cigar butts. He can't help himself every once in a while. Like, you know, the list of names that Buffett owns that you and I would point to and say they have no discernible impact, but um, because people love to dig through, you know, every decision that a, a rich person makes, right? the, uh, the line from Fiddler on the Roof, you know, when you're rich, they think you really know. Uh, you know, people look for the genius in Kirby Vacuum and World Encyclopedia and all these sorts of things. They have no material impact. I mean, Buffett's success can largely be tied to Geico. It's just such an extraordinary home run, and and it's one that he wrote about over and over and over again. And it's not like he hid it and didn't tell people what he was doing. But that single investment accounts for the vast majority of his outperformance.
0: Yeah. It's interesting too, that, I mean, his, his, uh, evolution of, of, an, as an investor made that in a pretty important change, um, at some point after that, you know, speech, um, where a lot of these guys were cigar butt investors over that time period, um, through that low vol period. But I, I just thought that was an interesting, um, point that you know he uses that point that all these guys were successful and that kind of proves the efficient market hypothesis is wrong and and that there is true opportunity in the value factor but you're the first person i've seen point out that you know what could explain that uh is is the low volatility environment they had to operate in um part of your your argument against value right now though, right there's there's been a ton of people that have come out notably Cliff Asnes, you know, says it's going to be a great time to, you know, it's a great time to buy value, um, today. I think what you've written is part of the reason you feel, or maybe the majority of the reason you feel it's not such a great time to, to go long value is that we're probably just entering into a a higher volatility environment for a longer period.
1: Um, why would that be?
0: Why, why do you believe that?
1: Well, so I think that there's a couple of different components associated with that, but, um, First of all, I agree with Cliff and others that the measures that they are using that have historically been associated with outperformance, things like the spread between uh, the cheapest stocks and the most expensive stocks, that those are indeed hitting records, right? that those, Those levels are extreme. The flip side of that, of course, is why is that happening? And that then gets me into the analysis that we've done on passive investing. And so what is very different today versus 1999 when i became a value investor in the in the classic sense is in 1999 you had a structure in which value stocks had been so ignored that they were absolutely cheap so we had banks regional banks trading well below book value we had home builders that were trading at half of book value ahead of the biggest home building boom that we've seen since the 1970s. We had car companies that were often trading at three times earnings. And so you were absolutely looking at extraordinarily cheap vehicles uh, or securities that factored in a very deep recession on a cyclical basis. And on the other side of the equation, you had had money chase into things like the dot tops. Now, Cliff's points have become more true since we wrote our paper. But I would still argue that in absolute sense, very few of the securities are truly, truly cheap without having a massively exogenous factor, right? So if you think oil prices are too low, then yes, energy stocks are relatively attractive. But that's actually a very different forecast than saying, I think that this is a cheap company on the basis of its underlying fundamentals. You're making a forecast about something different in the future, that I would argue is is quite hard. Like if you can solve oil prices, you know, congratulations. Why are you messing your time messing around with securities? Um, the the other reason why I think that things are different this time is because the forces at work that are propelling momentum type strategies, driving larger, higher multiple companies higher, in our analysis, is tied to the growth of passive investing. And passive investing by virtue of buying market cap weighted or more accurately float weighted uh, portfolios where they are putting the most money towards the most richly valued largest companies. Unless we see a reason why that's going to change, it's very hard for me to see how this pattern reverses itself. We effectively have an environment in which by virtue of demographics and the way that we actually measure performance in our industry Value managers are facing redemptions. Active managers in general, and Corey Hofstein just put out a really good paper illustrating this dynamic. Active managers typically can't own enough Apple to match a benchmark weight. right? So when active managers, which are owned, their, their investors tend to be older. When they are redeemed simply because their clients are facing retirement, they get fired. They're forced to sell the stocks that they love buy back the stocks that they might have shorted, they hate. And that's creating an impulse in the opposite direction. And on the other side of the equation, younger investors are all passive. They they don't really have a mechanism with the exception of, of the past couple of months where there's been kind of a mania associated with some of these components. But they don't really have a mechanism for investing other than passive vehicles. Their 401ks are directed into passive vehicles they you know, if they have a registered investment advisor, anyone worth their salt has functionally recommended buying ETFs, which are a tax advantaged vehicle, and in particular buying market cap weighted ETFs, because those outperform over time, as we hear over and over again, the lowest fee product type products. And so money is being forced into strategies that mimic and reinforce the momentum type strategies And being pulled out of strategies that might allow value to outperform. And I just don't see the mechanism in place for that to reverse anytime soon. Well,
0: you also make a good point um, in that, you know, it seems um, like a lot of the, I guess, uh, relative performance of value is less explained by values, you know, absolute performance being so poor uh, it's it's more due to the fact that growth has been so you know has extremely outperformed to the upside, and so you know I guess we could infer from that if we do believe this reversion trade is going to happen, it could maybe happen more with growth you know giving back some of these gains rather than value performing outperforming or
1: starting to perform better on an absolute basis. Yeah, I I think that's correct. And um, I think we see evidence of that. The only time that the value factor meaningfully outperforms is when the market in total pulls back. So the value factor has now effectively become negatively correlated with the market performance. And that would be consistent with that view, right, that ultimately the risk is not that you you know are missing out on an incredible opportunity to buy value stocks, but more that people are overexposed to what we would think of as growth or or momentum names, in a situation in which that might reverse for any number of reasons. Yeah, and I
0: think that's a very important distinction that you know probably value investors are. Not making and that's really your your point. One of the points, key points, you're making in those papers is that you know value investors like to think it's going to uh, uh, you know help them going forward. It's creating a good opportunity for value, but that might not be where the true opportunity lies. So I want to come back to this this question about rising volatility environment, though, because it seems like um, you know that's that is what you're you're positioning for. That's what you believe is is going to happen going forward how is i guess how is that related to this this passive framework or or is it totally unrelated?
1: No no it's very much related so um the way to think about passive and, the, and and the reason why we've had somewhat unique insights is that we stopped thinking of them as passive and instead again going back to this process that we went through with identifying what a systematic value investor is doing is we actually identified the rules under which passive investing behaves, right? What are the rules of its engagement? And it's kind of staggering to realize the simplicity, which is just this very simple mantra that you've heard me say over and over again. If you give me cash, then buy. If you ask for cash, then sell. If neither of those happens, they do nothing. They are passive, right? They are not passive on average because they are continually receiving inflows. In other words, they're just constantly buying. If the situations emerge that they're going to sell, then obviously that becomes quite damaging. And effectively, we haven't even seen that type of dynamic emerge. We don't really know what it looks like, although it it strikes me as extreme volatility. But in the meantime, you create dynamics that are similar to what we've seen in markets like Bitcoin, where people refer to hodling. So effectively, under most situations, the only interaction the passive has is because money has come in, they try buying. And if money is coming out of active managers, people decide to behave in a risk-off fashion, there is no information content that's going to the passive player that says, hey, it's more attractive to buy now. And so they don't step in with an increase in volume that allows the market to create the conditions under which a March-type dynamic emerged where the active managers tried to sell and there was no additional buying coming from the passive managers. If you think about it in its simplest form, a market is actually just transactions, right? It's you deciding that you want to sell something or me deciding that I want to buy something. And so the right way to model it, I've used this analogy in a discussion with Raoul Paul uh, back in December of 2019. Imagine that you want to go to the market to transact and you need to figure out the odds or the ability that you can transact at today's price. And so you have a bag and the bag is filled with marbles. White marbles are active or discretionary managers. Black marbles are passive managers. If I reach in and I pull out a white ball, then I'm able to transact because somebody has the flexibility to sell to me. I've encountered a discretionary manager. If I reach in and I pull out a black ball, I have no capacity to transact. Effectively, that person is dead to me. They don't actually know I even exist because they haven't received an instruction from their investor telling them what to do. As the proportion of black balls grows, the frequency with which you can't transact rises. And that creates conditions for discontinuous markets. Because if I need to sell and I can't find somebody to sell to me, the only way that I can encourage new buyers to show up is by lowering my price. Likewise, if I want to buy, the only way I can do that is to get people to pay attention to me by raising the price at which I'm willing to buy. So market volatility picks up in both directions under the conditions of a rise of passive investing. That
0: that makes me think of a a quote from... Charlie Munger from, I don't know, several years ago, where he said, somebody asked him about passive investing. And he said, if you take it to its logical conclusion, this is the paraphrase, not the actual quote, but if you take it to its logical conclusion, you'll get preposterous results, absurd results. And I always thought, you know, he was probably talking about valuations and how, you know, prices become, the market becoming less efficient from a valuation standpoint. But I think from a, from a liquidity standpoint is really where you're kind of taking this uh, you know, quote, um, and, and it makes it makes a great deal of sense.
1: Well, I, I think it makes sense, um, and it actually speaks to some of my frustrations. I mean, you've seen me publicly debate Cliff Asness uh, in a couple of different ways, um, and our our value series was in large part put out in, in to address what we felt was some significant misinformation that was emerging on this on this discussion. Um. The insight is very straightforward, which is that passive is only passive if they are not receiving flows. And so in the conditions that we have today where they are continually receiving flows, they effectively become a giant active manager with completely absurd rules. And So when you have that situation, the markets begin to break at much lower levels than most people have assumed. So the unique part of our analysis is we consider the dynamics of share gain. So when you're moving from 0% passive to 1% passive to 5% passive to 10% passive, that can happen in a couple of different ways. But in almost all situations, money is coming out of active managers and going into passive managers. And that's a very different analysis than if you were to run a fixed share and basically do a simulation where you say, okay. Let's assume passive is 10% and then see how the market interacts. Or let's assume the market is 20% and let's see how the market reacts. Let's assume it's at 30%. What nobody had done prior to the work that we did was look at the dynamic of that evolution. What's required as you go from 10 to 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 to 60? And the flow characteristics associated with that under the rules of these individual players and that's where the insights really come out, right? So John Bogle himself actually said, if everybody was passive, then the markets would be in chaos, right? Because you'd be completely incapable of setting prices. But that happens much earlier than he thought. He thought it would be at 90%. Our analysis suggests that somewhere around 30%, it begins to meaningfully impact the markets. And by the time you get to 50%, and we're somewhere in the 43 44% range today, By the time you get to 50%, the the proportion of time you go to the market and you try to transact and you pull out that black ball, the probability of that event becomes large enough that the markets begin to behave in a distinctly discontinuous fashion, which is something we've just never seen before.
0: Well, you know, I've been watching this this rally off of the March lows, and one of the things that is just struck me as the, one of the most amazing parts of it is, is watching a stock like Apple gain over a trillion in in market cap in whatever it is, five, six months time. And, you know, I think some of that can be explained, you know, by this, the options trading, but it seems to me that this lack of liquidity, right. Uh, you know, where are the Apple sellers? If there are no Apple sellers and there's money coming into passive, right. They're putting the most amount of their money into Apple. Um, That could be, you know, this lack of liquidity could help explain those dynamics.
1: Well, I, I think it's actually uniquely skewed towards many of these larger companies as well. So, again, another structural change that has occurred in the markets is how we actually engage in market making operations. And so we used to have dedicated specialists on the New York Stock Exchange or on the American stock exchange, which people have largely forgotten, ever existed the Philadelphia options exchange. All these markets had market makers who gained access to their post by committing capital. Right? So I used to work for a firm called Spearley's and Kellogg. Spearley's and Kellogg was the largest specialist firm on the New York stock exchange. Uh, they were bought out for roughly $5 billion by Goldman Sachs in 1999 or 2000. Maybe I can't remember. Um, and, they would have to put up capital and guarantee liquidity in a company like JP Morgan or a company like Apple. Today, the market-making operations post-decimalization and the transition to electronic markets, those market-making operations are left to high-frequency traders who have the option to make a market but not the requirement to make a market. And that means that there's much less capital that's actually out there to make a market in these. So just a good example of this, if we go back to the recent correction uh, after the August rally, if you actually looked at Apple stock and the liquidity of the order book, the depth of the order book, at one point in time, when I just happened to take a snapshot of it, there was only something in the neighborhood of two and a half million dollars worth of liquidity available for Apple's shares. Right, so, if you had wanted to do a trade of more than two and a half million bucks, and again, remember Apple is somewhere in the neighborhood of two trillion dollars in market cap, right? So, less than one one thousandth of the market cap was actually available for you to transact. That becomes really important because when Vanguard receives an inflow, they're buying in proportion to the market cap. And so, if a billion dollars goes into Vanguard on that day, which is a fairly typical day, they're going to have to buy somewhere in the neighborhood of $60 million worth of Apple stock versus $2.5 million of liquidity. That's going to push Apple higher. Or conversely, if people are trying to sell Apple in proportion to its market cap, they're going to be selling a crazy amount more of Apple than they would of many other securities. And so it it facilitates this type of of dynamic or pressure, this discontinuous pressure to the topside, as you point out, creates the absurd conclusion that in the past, you know, three months, Apple has managed to add more in market cap than it did in its entire history prior to this.
0: Yeah, and it's a great point that you make. I think in your latest paper, um, where you point out, while you know the popular narrative is the markets being driven by liquidity injected into the markets by the Fed, uh, the reality is uh, liquidity has been declining um, dramatically. Yes, and that. You know, that can help to explain, um, you know, just like you, you kind of demonstrated with Apple, um, a lot of the, the, the rally that we've seen uh, in the market and in, in these individual stocks. Um, but like you point out, also, this, this cuts both ways. So. In terms of the options side of it, too, because, you know, there's the passive side of it and people buying equity and, and there being no liquidity there. There's also lack of liquidity in the options market, too. That could probably exacerbate some of these you know, manic call buying trends that we're seeing, too. Is, it, is that something you're seeing in options also?
1: Well, we're seeing a couple of different things happen in options, right? One is that there's been a dramatic concentration increase in terms of market making. And so there are far fewer market makers In the options market than there were five years ago, those who are there are increasingly able to pass through cost increases in a monopolistic fashion. And so we actually saw this very explicitly in the behavior in August, where when those dealers were faced with a surge of supply and a relative uh, surge of demand, I'm sorry, and a relative lack of supply of options on companies like Apple, they raised prices i.e. implied volatility rose dramatically for those names. That is evidence of monopolistic type pricing power. And that would, again, go back to the underlying characteristics of these markets, where you now have market making under a, you can choose to provide liquidity, but you don't have to. There's no uh, contractual relationship as we used to have. The second thing that has happened is, is that there, has be, there is an increasing dearth of supply. And so as stocks have ripped upwards, those who have uh, sold call options, so a, a very traditional strategy would be a call overriding where you own the underlying shares in Apple. On a monthly basis, you sell call options on Apple that are 2 to 5% out of the money, telling yourself that the premiums that you collect in the positive outcome that Apple moves higher in price um, are going to more than compensate you over time for the potential lost upside. What we've seen in this rally has been that selling those call options has been a terrible mistake. It's led to underperformance and the need to purchase back those shares that you've lost in an increasing fashion. And so, there has been a change in strategies where people are increasingly less willing to sell those options. And that is then in addition that that has contributed as well to the behavior that you're seeing in the options markets. There's a reduction of supply and an increase in demand. Our analysis would actually suggest that the supply side of the story is more important than the demand side of the story.
0: Fascinating. You know, Uh, With this liquidity situation, you know, paired with, and I guess uh, it's partly or largely driven by the passive framework uh, and uh, a rising volatility environment. You you mentioned that quote uh, from Jack Bogle or paraphrase that, you know, you reach a point where, you know, chaos ensues. And you you believe we've kind of already crossed that threshold uh, around
1: 30%. Uh, a while ago um well just the, just to clarify it we don't think chaos ensues but we do think it, that's the point at which you begin to see an inflection and in volatility
0: right and so that that's what i was going to ask you to define chaos so, so to somebody thinking about managing risk in an equity portfolio what is what does
1: chaos look like to you well that's a that's a hard question <laughs> um everybody has their own definition of chaos um for me, chaos under those conditions is is a discontinuous market that prevents you from hedging your exposures. So we presume that we have the ability to sell something or that we have the ability to buy something at a price that is near the existing price. If that ceases to be the case, I would argue that's largely chaotic because then you're forced to really evaluate, can I pursue a strategy That allows me to own securities, particularly own securities that have relatively low dividend yields associated with them, and slowly return my capital to myself through either selling off shares as I age or through collecting it in the form of dividend yield or in the form of call overwriting strategies, et cetera. If I lose that ability, I would argue that you're beginning to approach the dynamics of chaos. Quite explicitly, I know you're aware of this. I mean, we have run simulations that suggest that what we just saw in terms of both the correction in March and the recovery from March are well within expectations. And if we continue to have an increase in passive share gain, which I think is inevitable because of the demographic structure of the market, where young people are over 90% passive and old people are quite low in passive, only around 20%. If you continue that process of passive share gain, I would suggest that, you know, I think the, the classic line is you ain't seen nothing yet.
0: So that's the foundation for uh, this rising volatility environment. I think it's it's interesting because it's, it, when you think about it in terms of the liquidity situation you're talking about, it, it becomes pretty obvious that there has literally been no liquidity on the, on the offer side. Um, and I, but I, I think, For people to, people have a really hard time imagining uh, a situation where there is no liquidity on the bid side for these massive two trillion dollar, you know, uh, stocks. But what you're saying is that probability or possibility is probably greater than than
1: most people imagine right now. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it depends on imagination, right? So some people clearly have overactive imaginations and others have underactive imaginations. But yes, relative to history, we would describe it as the markets are just more fragile. They, They exhibit fragility both to the top side and to the downside. And when you see that, you have a choice. You can either say, well, I'm really excited about the upside, you know, So prices could theoretically go to any level. I often hear people excited about that interpretation of our view. But there's also a path dependency associated with it, where similar to what transpired with the XIV in February of 2018 and the blow up in the VIX complex, when you're running that high level of volatility, the potential for a quote unquote go to zero event from which you can't recover becomes uncomfortably high.
0: Yeah, it it becomes, you know, it really starts to, uh, I guess, underline your, I guess, what you've inferred from all this research is that the real value play in the markets right now is being long volatility. Um, Option premiums are underpriced. And so it sounds like your firm is taking advantage of this rising volatility trend and these dynamics um, by buying both calls and puts. Um, is there a way that you see for, I guess, knowledgeable individual investors to try and and kind of create a long vol position in their own portfolios?
1: So the classic challenge of long volatility is the negative carry associated with it, and so people are well aware of these types of dynamics. That hedging your portfolio leads to a drag in returns. Were long volatility almost as a byproduct? of the fact that we view options as too cheap, given the underlying characteristics of the market that we see. And so our performance is very different than most long vault managers. We do have risk-off characteristics, but it is is different. And in simple terms, unfortunately, it's really complex. (laughs) And it's very hard to do this effectively as a retail investor. And I think that's one of the real... You know, I don't want to use the word crimes, but it's one of the you know it it, it's it's one of the tragedies of the situation that we're in, and that there's just not a lot of advice that I can offer to people. So I would describe it broadly as we're trying to do something with the markets that they weren't designed to accomplish. We're trying to take a massive time preference shift, the need to accumulate savings for twenty and thirty year retirements, and put that into a system that has a relative surplus of capital and is not really in a position to absorb it in the way that we've chosen to do so. And so I I think we're in a very challenging situation and I don't have a lot of advice for people in terms of how they could construct their own portfolio because I do think that what we're experiencing right now is in many ways different than anything we've seen before. There are similarities, right? There are similarities to the structures that we are deploying capital to time periods like the 1920s, but they're not direct analogs. And so I I think it's highly uncertain in terms of how this ultimately plays out.
0: Right. Well, I, I just had to ask because I, I had, um, you know, Chris Cole on the podcast back at the very beginning of the year before the March um, crash. And a lot of people listen to that and, and uh, you know, said, hey, it makes, I, you know, we've read his paper. It makes a great deal of sense to have long vol as an allocation, as a broader a piece of a broader asset allocation. But it's just really tough to to kind of create that uh, for individual investors.
1: Yeah, I I think it's really hard to create that for individual investors. I also think that it is. You know, I, I mentioned I was the teaching assistant for Gary Gordon, who uh, was known for his role in AIG. Uh, he's less well-known, at least outside of the industry, for his role with commodities in 2005, where he wrote a paper that looked at the history of commodities as an asset class that offered a separate return stream. And I would suggest that there's similarities with a long volatility exposure. It's just, it's not an asset class that is designed to absorb the type of capital that would be required to create, you know, the dragon portfolio that Chris talks about, for example, it doesn't mean people shouldn't try, but to put 20% of portfolios into long volatility exposures is almost impossible. I mean, I I would actually go even further. I would say it is impossible for everyone to do. So the only possible conclusion from that is either you choose to ignore it or A subset of investors is going to be quite successful from being involved in that space if it moves in that way. We saw this happen with commodities where institutions suddenly tried to move into an asset class that just was not designed to accommodate that type of capital, right? So in the 2006, 2007, 2008 time period, you saw commodity prices rise in a manner that seemed to defy explanation. It was largely tied to the inflow of capital coming from the institutional space that could very well happen in the vol space and it could lead to extraordinary returns to those who are long volatility. We, we obviously can't know that, but it, I, I can say with a hundred percent certainty that to run 20% allocation to long vol is not something that is available to everyone.
0: Right. And for those who you know are interested in kind of moving that direction or trying to, replicate that type of a strategy. Is there any type of um, resource in terms of education for learning about options and strategies that you would recommend?
1: Well, when you think about learning about options and strategies, I always encourage people to make sure that they have the basics before they start projecting other stuff. And so I I always encourage people to read Sheldon Natenberg's book on option trading. Uh, There's any number of books that have been written on these types of subjects and there's even more podcasts available, educational materials, et cetera. Again, I would emphasize that it is very, very hard to do. It's not something that lends itself uh, easily to replication in a retail portfolio. Um, They can also go to our website. Chris Cole is a phenomenal resource in terms of his writing on this stuff. Our website is logicafunds.com. As you mentioned, we have a number of white papers up there. We will be continuing to add to that, and we consider education to be an important component uh, of our uh, our process. Both informing investors as to what they should expect from our portfolios, and informing investors about what we see happening in the broader markets that may contribute to how we manage those portfolios. Uh, but it, this is this is unfortunately, I've said this elsewhere. Like this is adult swim right it is it is not something that lends itself well to uh, an easy re e- t- excuse me an easy retail trading account um and so I just encourage people to think about that dynamic if you can't properly hedge your portfolio one of the considerations that that you should have in place and um, uh, I know you also know alex gorovich uh by reputation he and i were were having an extended conversation last week on exactly this topic. If you can't find the appropriate hedges for your portfolio that allow you to reduce the volatility or the risk associated with those portfolios, one of the things that's always worth considering is just, do you just want to take your risk exposures down? And that's very hard to do when markets are ripping upwards.
0: Yeah. But it's probably the best, uh, you know, most straightforward thing for most people. And, you know, maybe it's because I live in a ski town, but I always say, you know, short selling and option trading are, you know, the double black diamond of the uh, the markets are trading. Uh, And so, yeah, they're not something to go into lightly. Um, I highly recommend everybody check out LogicaFunds.com that those papers are all available there. I'll have links on on my site, too. is there anywhere else, you know, you have um, that you'd recommend people could kind of keep up with your ideas?
1: Um, you can also follow both Wayne and I on Twitter. I am at ProfPlum99, which I'm not going to go into the full explanation mm-hmm. of, but uh, is, is basically a historical uh, accident. Uh, and Wayne can be uh, followed at Wayne Himmelsine, H-I-M-E-L-S-E-I-N. And we're, we both are relatively active on Twitter in terms of our, our uh, public voices.
0: Well, that's how we met, and I'm, I'm super grateful that we did. I, before I let you go, you know, this has been kind of a dense conversation. I need to change it up to something much lighter. But from your Twitter feed, speaking of your Twitter feed, you appear to be a hardcore foodie. <laughs> um, and, uh, or just I a very am, fat
1: guy, but yeah. It's, yeah
0: uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a burger fan, and I was admiring your Juicy Lucy um, you know, photos, would you mind just kind of, I guess, giving us a a quick uh, recap of, of that recipe or divulging your secret recipe of the Juicy Lucy for the audience?
1: Uh, so Juicy Lucy is two burger patties with cheese sealed inside. Uh, the way that I prepare it is I use uh, Montreal steak seasoning uh, on the burger. I will use a relatively high fat content burger, Um, And my preference is to put cheddar cheese in, although the the traditional recipe is to put uh, American cheese in there. Um, You seal the two patties together with the cheese inside. Uh, I then sous vide uh, the patties to fully cook them and melt the cheese inside at a temperature of about 134 degrees, which would be a medium rare concoction. And then I flash sear them on the grill under extremely high heat to put a nice uh, Maillard reaction or, or char onto it. Um, and it's actually extraordinarily easy, and a uh, is is one of the more delicious ways to enjoy a burger.
0: Yeah, I mean it looked it looked fantastic. I've tried it with blue cheese, but it was before I got a sous vide, and so uh, the sous vide is probably the critical step there to make sure you because it's a lot of beef. So
1: it's you get it, it's you yeah, you're, at, at minimum you're talking a half pound burger, and it's yeah. um, and it, that lends itself the the, the attraction of the sous vide is, is that it allows it to cook all the way through. Uh, at exactly the right temperature and then you can cool it down before the flash searing if you try to do something like this on the grill the odds are very high that you're going to overcook the outside and be left with a very rare burger on the inside Um, yeah sous-vides are relatively inexpensive and i I would encourage people to look into them they're actually quite easy and it can take your cooking to the next level
0: yeah no and it sounds sounds awesome i'm going to try it out this weekend (laughs) fantastic (laughs) Yeah. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, I'm grateful to you. I think the audience is going to love this. And uh, thank you so much.
1: It was my pleasure, Jesse. Thank you.
0: And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.